It's a fitting song for us this morning as we turn the page in the scriptures to Psalm 22. If you would please look there with me. If you're using the Pew Bible, I think it's on page 457. If you have a Bible um, and you're not using the Pew Bible, just kind of flip to the center. Probably you'll be in Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 22 together this morning. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Why? Because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Because of his death and resurrection. Because of forgiveness of sins. Because of peace that comes through faith in Christ. Because of his work for us on the cross. We have hope today if you are in Christ because all that Christ accomplished for us crosses over the barrier of sin and leads us back to harmony and unity with God. Forgiveness of sin, cleansing and peace with Him because of Christ. We have hope because of Him. But that Christ came, that that. Uh, that gift of hope came to us at great cost. The anguish of suffering that Jesus experienced, we see echoes of that in our passage this morning in Psalm 22 as it opens and the familiar words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you found yourself at times feeling the weight of that anguish in your own life Whatever the experiences have been, whatever the troubles have come, whatever the circumstances that you have, that you have endured, this experience of sorrow and feeling forsaken, where is God in my trouble? Why does he seem so far off? I, I cry to you by day, as the psalmist says in verse 2, but you do not hear. I cry at night. I find no rest. I can't even sleep because the trouble of my heart the emotion of my life, the anguish that I feel is catching me up. But then the psalmist turns to joy. And this morning we're going to find that we can receive hope as we find hope in God. Common to the human condition is this experience of suffering. Whether trials are large or small, if you are alive... You can anticipate, if you have not experienced suffering at some point up to this point, you are sure to experience suffering at some point along the way. I suppose it's emblematic that the introduction to life of every person who is alive, the introduction to life is marked by pain. Not your pain, the pain of your mother. And of course, that was the consequence of sin. Anguish. Suffering and pain was a result of sin of Adam and Eve. And, and, and it would be passed on to every subsequent individual and generation throughout history, regardless of where they live on the planet. Suffering and anguish would mark them. God promises Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And subsequently, in the world around us, it's also marked by pain. He turns, God turns to, to Adam and, and, and conveys the same message. 
to Adam, he says in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread all till you return to the ground. It is the curse that God has placed in creation because of sin that we experience pain and suffering today. It is the same suffering that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 8. In verse 18 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Isn't that an interesting picture that the Apostle Paul compares the the suffering that even creation has been subjected to and compares it back to the suffering all the way back to the garden, all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the the, the place where, where sin had its initial inception. Pain will mark you because sin has become the pattern of life. But the whole creation marked by suffering Suffering is not an end in itself. Suffering is meant to point you to hope. It's meant to be an instrument of hope for you. God allows and introduces suffering and anguish and consequence of sin into this life to direct your focus to things that are better, things that are higher, things that are purer, to God himself, so that we don't settle for the things of this life that we don't, Enjoy and are satisfied with the good gifts of God, but, but we're directed in the, in the struggles of this life to, to look to God himself, who alone can satisfy. Suffering and anguish is a gift from God to direct our hearts to God himself. And, and that's what Paul will say in, in Romans chapter 8, 19 to 25. He says, the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The struggles of this life are meant to point us to God. The hardships that we feel are meant to direct our attention to the only one who is the God of hope, the only one who can satisfy the the troubles of our lives, to point us to hope and faith in God himself. But what is hope? And this is important for us to to sort out because the the understanding of hope in this world is is totally uh, counterintuitive to the hope that we find in Scripture. The definition of hope that we find in Merriam-Webster, for example, is hope implies little certainty, but suggests confidence in the possibility that what one desires or longs for will happen. You might call this wishful thinking, 
It's really no better than, than a slim possibility of something that could happen depending on the circumstances or depending on the person who's made a promise to you that something's going to take place. But, and, and, it, and, it, and it might happen. You're holding out hope. There's a slim possibility of it, but it's only that, just a, a possibility, wishful thinking. This is not the hope of the Bible. As we find in the Scripture, the Dictionary, the, the theological word book, helps us understand, or excuse me, the, the dictionary of biblical languages puts it this way, to look forward with confident expectation. To look forward with confident expectation. And why can we look forward with confident expectation? Why can we anticipate that things will happen? And we can set our hopes and securities on those things, we can trust it as if it already took place. Why can we do this? Because our hope is not in this life, but our hope is in Him. Our hope is in a God who is true, who is dependable, who makes promises and keeps them. And as the psalmist will say about our Lord, it says that He exalts His word above His very name. Now, that's almost too hard to even imagine. But the word of God in keeping his word helps to enhance and elevate the character of God so that the name of God is true. What God does establishes his character. His name is dependent upon his works. The things that God does, his dependability is wrapped up in his doing and so his name is true because his word is true from start to finish. And here we find in this psalm, in the midst of this overwhelming pain, David is able to hope. He's able to trust. We find this hope in verse four, in verse five, in verse nine. It's the same word for hope that we found in our text last week in verse 21, verse seven. It says this, for the king trusts, and that's our word, trust, and hope that the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Now, why is the, the, the correlation between trust and hope? Well, it's because the Septuagint, which was a, a very early Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, often gives us insight into how God's people first interpreted the Old Testament. And, and according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, the Septuagint never translates this word trust that we find in our passage today, never translates that word pistuo, which is the Greek word for faith or trust, but always translates it as alpizo, which is the word for hope. The focus then is not on the intellectual aspects of faith, but the emotional aspects to feel safe. And of course, we can all understand this because how often is it that our heart has not caught up with our head? Our emotions haven't caught up with our theology. The things that we feel haven't caught up with the things that we know are true. And here in this Psalm, David is saying, everything is aligned. The things that I know are the things that I feel. And my heart has caught up with my head. We can try to convince ourselves not to worry, 
And I'm sure there have been a number of times where you've anchored your heart. I know that God is sovereign. I know that God is good. I know that God will take care of me. He promises to meet my needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He promises to comfort me when I feel forsaken. He promises to be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And yet I feel like David does here that God has forsaken me that God is distant, that God is unmoved by my prayers. We've all been there at some time or the other. But David begins there, it doesn't doesn't, uh, define where he ends. The end of this psalm is this expression of praise that is so amplified and so full of energy. We see how hope has led him to praise, led him to hope and joy. So how can we learn from David's experience? How can we allow our suffering also to point to God? How can we help our heart to catch up with our head? I think we find five ways this morning in which we can follow David's example. First is remember to praise the Lord. Remember to praise the Lord. We find this at the very beginning and we find this at the very end. The subtitle that is given to us for this psalm is to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. And then we find from verses 22 to 31 this amplified praise to God that is so robust and so enthusiastic, it is certain to happen. David's hope has turned to praise. His anguish and suffering has turned to joy. Remember last week when we looked at Psalm 20 and Psalm 21, we we saw that the subtitles that are given are likely part of Scripture. They're likely inspired. And so here again we find David who is handing this psalm over to the choir master. He doesn't want his anguish and his feelings of suffering to to, to remain with him. He wants to lead others into understanding that while they may feel rejected by God, they too can enjoy a life of hope. So David is inviting participation by, by turning this psalm, this raw emotion over to a choir master so others can participate in seeing God. Because David knew David knew the power of music. He knew how much of a gift music was to his people. You remember when the troubling spirit came upon King Saul, that this was the first time in which David was, had entered into Saul's presence. In 1 Samuel 16, 15 and 16, we, we find this happening. Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And then turning to verse 21, and so David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. God has given us the gift of praise. 
And one of the ways in which we can begin to enjoy the benefits of, of, a, of a heart that is aligned to our head is by, by allowing ourselves to sing the truths that God has conveyed in his word to, to help our emotions come into play and line up with the theology that we believe. I'm sure you've all, all experienced it for yourself. And I'm not one who's given to depression but there was a, a period in my life that was particularly difficult. At time and time again, the, the doors seemed to be open and closed, open and closed, open and closed. And, 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 and I was getting to the place where, where I couldn't hope anymore because if I hoped again, I'd be disappointed again. And as I was driving to work one morning, I called my wife and I just said, I just don't think I can hope anymore. I think I'm at the end of hope. If I don't hope at least tomorrow, I know I won't be disappointed. I won't be let down again. I won't feel as though the, 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 the carpet is yanked out from underneath me. And so I was, I was really at the end of hope. I can't hope in God anymore. And that afternoon, by God's grace, as I'm listening to music and doing my work there at the computer, God reminded me of a song and it played there uh, on my headphones. It's this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And in that moment of listening to this song and aligning my heart to the words and, and, and feeling overcome by the emotion of this song and the truths that were contained therein, my, my heart finally felt like it could hope again. It was finally free. It finally experienced this hope that we find in our passage today. My, my heart finally aligned with my head. All the doctrine that was there was, was now finally a part of, of the totality of my life and I could believe again that God was faithful and true. In that moment, I felt safe, emotionally safe. Music is this gift from God to help align our heart with our head. But music is also a response of those who look to God. It, it becomes kind of the, the, the reflex, as it were, of a heart of one who is looking to God. We, we find this in two passages, one in Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, that says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Those who are full of the Spirit, the reflex of their life is singing, is worship, is bowing down in reverence to God. There, there is this overflow of what God has accomplished, this, the truths that God has given now spill out of us in worship, in song to Him. But also as we find from Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This overflow of praise that comes from a heart that is anchored to the word of God itself. So as the spirit of God and the word of God is part of our life and our focus is directed to him, it flows out in 
singing. Singing as a gift. Remember to praise the Lord. But how praise is possible? How is praise possible in the midst of deep anguish? And that's where we turn to verses one to three, and we see we need to remember our place before the Lord. Not just remember to praise the Lord, but remember your place before the Lord. Look at this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groanings, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. David is experiencing this deep anguish of soul and heart, but David does not allow himself to remain there. He he begins to, to help his heart to turn towards God in hope as he turns his attention to who God is. Notice in verse three, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. David reflects on the character of God and the position of God in heaven. You are holy, he says. You are absolutely pure. You are radically distinct from all that is worldly. You are set apart from your creation. You are distinct and separate in nature and in essence. You are pure and undefiled and clean. And so because God is holy, all that God does is right and just and pure, and it is good. Even the hard things that God allows to happen in life are good because God is holy. He's holy. But not only is God holy, God is enthroned. He's enthroned in heaven, and the Hebrew uses a word that, that, that speaks of this present quality of his of his dwelling place, but that it goes on for all of eternity. This enthroning that is, is an inhabiting or dwelling or staying. You have a place of distinction, a place of honor. God, you dwell in a place that is above all, a place that is worthy of praise. You are enthroned on the praises of your people, which means that your people must bow before you and come to understand who you are in their position before you. You alone are worthy and worthy of our praise. David reinforces this point towards the end of his psalm in verses 28 and 29. Notice it says, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not not keep himself alive. God is king in the past, God is king now, God is king in the future, and God will remain king for for eternity. God is enthroned. And since God is enthroned, everything in this life serves God's purposes. God is not obligated to me. I am obligated to him. God does not exist for me. I exist for him. God does not serve me. My purpose in life is to bow before him and to serve his purposes. And so if I feel that God is distant, I must comfort my heart that the seeming distance serves his greater purpose. 
He is good. He is holy. He is pure. And so he only allows those things in my life that are right. And since God is enthroned, then everything that happens in my life must serve his purposes. So when I come to terms with this truth that I feel that I exist for God, he does not exist for me, then I no longer feel entitled. I no longer feel that God deserves to do something for me. And I I no longer feel abandoned. I no longer feel rejected. But I feel indebted to him. That I belong to him. And I am serving his purposes. And the beautiful part about the Hebrew language as we look into verse one, that even in David's complaint, this word, my God, my God, these two words are in construct relationship with the personal pronoun I. And all that that means is that when David is crying out to God, he has put himself so close to God that this word is inseparable. My God is one word in the Hebrew where David is expressing, you belong to me, we're inseparable. And so that even though I feel that you have forsaken me, you are still there. In the Hebrew expresses the intimate relationship that David experiences and knows to be true and he's trying to coach his heart to feel the way he knows his theology leads him. These two words are in consecutive order. They bind David to God. This expression of hope even in the deepest anguish. In the midst of feeling forsaken, and abandon comes this understanding of his place before God. God is supreme. And it leads him to reflect on his past. That's the next point. He remembers now his past faith in the Lord. You can kind of see as this psalm progresses this growing clarity that, that, that is shaping David's words and his heart as he is writing this psalm. We find in verses 4 and 5 and verses 9 to 11 this faith that is referring to, this word for trusted that, that the psalmist continues to point to. We find in verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Twice he speaks of trust, which is our word for hope. Essentially, David is saying, I see your track record. I understand your dependability. My situation is not unlike the situation of my fathers. They trusted in you and found you faithful. I can trust you and find you faithful as well. I look to the example of my fathers who put their hope in you in the darkest and hardest times of life. You carried them through. And if you are faithful to them, you will be faithful to me as well. In verse five, he continues, to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. You did not let them down. This word for rescue is is another word for answer. They prayed, you answered. And so I know your track record. While I feel forsaken, while I feel I'm crying out to you and you're not hearing, I know better because I I look at the faith of my fathers and the track record that you have that when they prayed, you answered. This is the God you are. I settle my heart in the truth of who you are, your character. And then verses nine to 11, he says, 
yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust, that's our word again, made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. And now David is finishing here where he started. He he is, again, the same word, this word, my God, that we found in verse one. He's coming back to, he's reminding himself of how God has been his God from the very beginning. Even at the earliest stages of his life, you are the same God who drew me to yourself. As early as I can remember, I've trusted in you. You have graciously given me a mother who pointed me to you. I belong to you from the beginning. You have been my God, and you will continue to be my God. Even as David reflects on his circumstances, his hope in God leads him now to depend on the presence of God, and that's where we go next. David remembers that help only comes from the presence of God. Remember God's presence alone will save you. He says in verse eight, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He says in verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. In verse 19, he says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Even when God seems distant, even when he seems indifferent, even when God seems unmoved by David's prayer, he understands, he's resolute. He has bound himself to know that help will only come from God. And so while help seems elusive in this moment, he knows to depend only on the presence of the Lord. He's resolute. My help comes from the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. Salvation comes from him. The solutions to his problems were not gonna be found in this world. The strength of nations, the strength of chariots, the strength of horses and bows and swords, as David will point to in Psalm 20. My help only comes from the Lord, his presence. The solutions to his problems can only be found in him. And as David recounts in this psalm, all of the the ways that the world is against him, he caps off each paragraph with this this, uh, uh, phrase of hope, of trusting in God. So in verse six, when David feels subhuman, he says, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people, even in the lowest form, the, the way that I feel in this moment. I, I don't even feel like a, a person anymore, but I know that my hope still comes from you. As he moves to verses 12 to 13, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Everyone is against me but my hope and my help are bound in you. In verses 14 and 15, he feels a total loss of physical strength. I am poured out like water, he says. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. 
at my lowest, when I feel like I'm about to die, still my hope is only in the presence of the Lord. Only the presence of God can rescue. And because of the rise of David's hope that we find through this psalm, he now sets his sights on the promise-making, promise-keeping Lord. He remembers God's promises will never fail, and that's how he concludes this psalm. Verses 22 to 31 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all those who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming of generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Throughout this section, David's heart erupts in praise because he has come, his heart has come to align itself with his head, and now he feels what he knows, and it explodes out from him, this worship of settled expectation. God will reign. And God will keep his promises. His promises will not fail. Verse 27, just focus your attention there for a moment. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. How does that happen? That happens because of Jesus, right? The guarantee of all of these promises are fulfilled in the person of Christ. The, the person of Christ who, who we see the shadows of all the way through in this psalm now begin to take shape in this eruption of praise and hope as David is anticipating this future Messiah and he knows that God will accomplish his word to his people. His faithfulness to Abraham, in you all the nations shall be blessed, is essentially what he is summarizing in verse 27. By sending a greater David figure, the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ will secure for his people hope. Jesus, it would, it would be said of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the forsaking of God so that those who are in Christ will not have to experience it for themselves. They may feel forsaken, but they will never be forsaken by God. And Jesus would experience open and public derision that is described in Psalm 22, 7. 
We find in Matthew 27, 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Jesus would be taunted for his faith in God as we find in verse eight. Those who passed by, uh, Matthew 27, 43, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. Then Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced. We find from Psalm 22, 16, a correlation to John 20, 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord speaking to Thomas. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then Jesus would be stripped and exposed and his enemies would, would barter for his clothes as we find in Psalm twenty-two eighteen. Matthew 27, 35 says, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. The extent to which you've experienced suffering and anguish in this life are a mere shadow of the fullness of the suffering that Jesus was willing to experience on your behalf. The anguish that he experienced, the suffering in this life the great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses was able to identify with our pain and is thus willing and able to lead us to hope. As we find in Hebrews 14, 6, uh, 4, 14 to 16, seeing then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us lay hold, hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus doesn't take the suffering away. Suffering really is a gift. It's a gift to lead us to himself. But Jesus also experienced the, the full breadth of suffering for us to help us know that even in suffering there is hope in God. And as Jesus suffered for us on the cross, he made a way for us never to be forsaken. As we come to a place of asking forgiveness for our sins, of coming to believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you'll be saved. As we come to a place of recognizing his holiness and recognizing our sinfulness that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and as we come to a place of realizing that he is enthroned in heaven and that we exist for him, he does not exist for us, as we come to appreciate that he is Lord and lay down our lives before him, we begin to see and experience the hope that can be found in faith and trust in Jesus alone. If you don't know that hope, the invitation this morning is to find that hope in God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have because of his work on the cross for us. God, may our lives be a testimony, a gospel declaration that even in the midst of suffering, we can enjoy hope that is beyond this life as we're looking to you. May our hearts be settled. May our hearts have this confident expectation because of 
the dependability of our God. We pray in Jesus' name.